Mark chapter 1, we'll look at verses 12 through 15 uh, this morning. You may not know this, but before I was a pastor, I did student ministry for about four years, and I would take our our students on trips often, and I would take them to different camps, and uh, one of the times that we would take them to... um, uh, what is it, Carowinds, and uh, what's the one in, in Virginia, that one, yeah, King's Dominion, thank you, uh, we take them to King's Dominion, and um, I remember this one time, we took them to a football game, and at this football game, it was like youth day, it was like Christian youth day, and they said, well, okay, this is a great time, it will be for all the high school students to come, and they'll get to hear a message, and it will be from a, a famous like Christian athlete, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And so we took, took the students, and they, they kind of cut out a section for all the students to come and, and hear this person share the gospel. And I remember this, this guy got up, and he began to, he started off by saying, you know, God wants you to, to have all your hopes and dreams fulfilled. And I was like, uh-oh, like, here we go. And then he began to talk about his career as a professional athlete and all the things that he did. And he said, you know, I, he did the whole Philippians thing. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. And this is why I'm able to become a professional athlete. And then he said, Jesus wants to be your friend. And then he said, who wants Jesus to be your friend? And of course, who's going to not raise their hand to that, right? And he said, if you want Jesus to be your friend, he goes, I'm going to ask everyone right now, bow your head and close your eyes. And I'm going to lead you through a prayer. And he asked everyone to say this prayer. And he led them to a prayer to invite Jesus into their heart. And at the end, he said, and he said, amen. Now, everyone look up. Everyone look up. If you prayed that prayer today, he said, you are a Christian. And I was like, oh, boy, right? We have to have a long conversation on the way back home about what just happened. Because what just happened is this. They did not hear the gospel and there are many people who walk away and they hear a, a message. They think, I'm a Christian because I want to be a friend of Jesus. I prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart. But here's what was missing in all of that. What was missing was what Christ actually did on the cross. What, mentioned, what was missing was his resurrection from the grave. What was missing was our sin and our need of a Savior. And so at no point was there a gospel message. Not only that, but there was no gospel invitation And a lot of times we think about a gospel invitation, we think about a prayer or walking an aisle or kneeling down before and repeating certain words, and that's what it means to be respond to the gospel. But but can I tell you that Scripture actually says there's more in how you respond to the gospel than just a prayer. Scripture actually has a biblical way that you and I are called to respond to the gospel. In other words, you can say all the right things about the content of the gospel, and if you miss the response in what God actually calls us to do in response to the gospel, we can actually miscommunicate what the gospel is. In other words, you can say the name Jesus, you can say death, burial, resurrection, you can say sin, you can say the cross, you can say all of that, but if you miss the weight of what scripture holds in in response to the gospel, you can actually miscommunicate the gospel. And so scripture has a response to the gospel that is clear and spelled out for us. And that's what I want to explore this morning. What does it mean to biblically respond to the gospel? Now, here's what's at stake. 
If we don't understand how to biblically respond to the gospel, we, we can miscommunicate the gospel. But one of the enemies of the gospel is not just false teaching of the gospel, but it's also false conversions to the gospel. Another way to say that is false response. So we need to know how to communicate the gospel, and we also need to know how to respond to it. Now, Mark's gospel is going to tell us what it means not just to know the gospel, but how to respond to it. Mark's gospel begins like this. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We saw last week that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. We, we saw that Mark's audience is the Romans. The Romans are skeptics. They don't believe in the gospel. They think that Jesus is a fraud because Jesus was said that he was the king of the world and king of Israel, and now Jesus dies on the cross. So how can the king die And how can he say all these things and die? But then what Mark's goal is to say, okay, because Jesus died and because Jesus rose from the grave, we can trust him as king. And so that's the gospel. He he begins by saying, this is the announcement. This is the gospel message that I want to proclaim to you. And now what we're going to see in the beginning of Mark's gospel is how then we respond to it. And we'll pick up in verse 12. It says this. The Spirit immediately drove him out, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, here's what happened. Jesus was uh, prepared the way, John the baptizer prepared the way for Jesus to come into the world John the baptizer comes and he baptizes Jesus. That would show a sign of the new covenant. Every single person who's a believer should be baptized to proclaim that I'm a part of this kingdom being ushered into the world. After Jesus goes through this miraculous scene, John, the spirit of God, sends Jesus out into the desert. And it actually says to be tempted by Satan. Matthew's gospel is even more clear. It says, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and, having, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding, right? But anyone have a problem with this? You have this miraculous scene. Jesus is ushering in the new, co- new covenant, the new kingdom, And he's saying, this is what it means to be a part of the new covenant. You become a believer in Christ. You have your heart changed. Then you're baptized. You publicly declare what Christ has done in your life. And not only that, he says, the spirit has now driven him out into the wilderness to be tempted. The spirit of God sends Christ, the son of God, to the wilderness to be tempted. And he's hungry for 40 days. What does Satan tempt him with? Food. I don't know if you've been hungry for 40 days, but like you're beyond hangry at that point, right? And why did he do this? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way. And the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way and he did not sin. So Jesus is tempted by Satan himself. And it's ironic what Satan tempts Jesus with. He tempts him with, tempts him with the kingdom of God, which Jesus already has. And Jesus doesn't sin. Now, why in the world does an all-powerful, all-knowing God lead Jesus into the wild to be tempted? Well, we'll understand that in the next 
couple of verses. Now, I want you to see something about Mark's gospel. Mark just gives you little snapshots of different stories in Jesus' life to, to, to prove that Jesus is king. So that's why it kind of moves fast. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what does he say the gospel of God is? Verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is this era that Christ has come into the world, and now Christ, because he's come into the world, is going to gather a people to call his own. Now, the Israelites, they thought, this is for me because I'm a Jew. He's going to be our king. Jesus is pointing coming to the world and saying, it's not, you're not going to be saved on your Jewishness. You're not going to be saved on your ethnicity. I'm going to call a people to myself that's going to cover the entire world. And again, the sign of this is a, is a change heart and baptism. They're showing they're a part of this. So this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, I'm gathering believers. I'm gathering a people to call my own. How would he gather them? What is he going to invite them to do as they respond to this message? This is what we see in the second part of this, verse 15. He says, the kingdom of God is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he say? What's the invitation of Christ? Repent and believe in what? The gospel. So what does it mean to be a part of this people of God that Christ is coming to gather throughout the world? He says, repent of your sins and put your faith, believe in the gospel. This is what it means to biblically respond to the gospel. Two words, repent and believe. And I want to show you that just from Christ's words, this truth carries all throughout the early church and all the way up to today in church history. For instance, after Jesus lives a perfect sinless life, after he's tempted in the wilderness, after he lives and he's persecuted and he's crucified on the cross, he uh, now resurrects three days later from the grave. And after he resurrects from the grave, I don't know if you know this or not, but he was with his disciples for 40 days telling them what the kingdom of God would be like. And as he is doing this, he tells his disciples that they're going to receive the, the Holy Spirit. They're going to receive the work of the Holy Spirit, and they'll be able to continue the same ministry that Christ has began. And so what happens is Peter begins to get, becomes filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter begins to preach God's word. And as he preaches God's word, it's the most incredible sermon ever preached at this point, especially in church history, because it's the first sermon ever preached in church history. And he gets up and he preaches this sermon, and thousands of people are responding. And what you have is what Peter says at the very end of Acts chapter 2, or, or the middle of Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, 37. It says, when they, the crowd heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, because we've heard the gospel, what do they say? Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do with this gospel? Look at what Peter said to them. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and 
you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is not a way to save someone. Again, baptism, it's assuming that they had already believed. Baptism, again, is a symbol, a sign that they already believe. So if if people were baptized, especially in this time, they were really putting a target on their head. They were saying, I'm denouncing Rome. I'm denouncing everything around me, and I'm following Christ. Christ is my master. Christ is my king. And he's saying, so repent and believe. That, That is what Peter is saying. That's what Peter is calling people to. Same thing Jesus said. Repent and believe. That's the response to the gospel. Later on, we see Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He's talking about specifically to the Ephesian elders. In teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he call people to? Repent and faith. Believe. Paul talks about his own testimony, about how he became a believer, and he reflects on the moment that Christ spoke the words to him to be a minister to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Acts 26, what does he say? This is what Jesus said to me. He says, Jesus came delivering you from the people from... um, the, the Gentiles, to whom I am sending to you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light, that's repentance, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith or belief in me. So all of these places that we're seeing from the words of Jesus Christ all the way through the early church, through church history, The call on believers when you hear the gospel, the response is repent and believe. To the Jews, to the Gentiles, repent and believe. So in other words, a Christian is one who turns away from their sins and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else to save them from their sin and the judgment to come. So this is a theme throughout the New Testament of what it means to biblically respond to the gospel. So if you don't know what it means to biblically respond to the gospel, just two words, repent and believe. Now I have to explain what these two things mean because for some of us it might be some deconstructing. So let's start with belief, all right? Believe is that word that a lot of people, or faith, a lot of people have mixed up. Like, right, we have, like, it's a little wooden thing on our mantle face, right? Live, laugh, love, believe, right? It's just a word that we just use, right? Every year, my family, we love uh, setting up for Christmas. And so after we set up for Christmas, we pull out different um, Christmas movies, you know, family vacation and some of the Christmas vacations, some of those, and we, we watch uh, Elf, that's one of, that's in the rotation for us. And if you haven't seen, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, all right? Um, but it's no surprise, like, you know, uh, Christmas is, could, could, could come to a bad ending if we don't save the day. That's, that's really how it ends, right? Santa Claus, his sleigh, it's run out of fuel. And how did it run out of fuel? People didn't believe, right? 
And if we could just get people to believe in the spirit of Christmas, then Santa on his sleigh, his believe-ometer or whatever you want to call it, it will go up. And his sleigh can then fly. And so what happens? Well, Zoe de Chanel has to sing. <laughs> and what happens when Zoe de Chanel sings Santa Claus is coming to town? Well, then you see the believeometer slowly come up. And then the kid adds on, and then it comes up a little bit more, and then the news stations capture it, and then it's broadcasted throughout homes, throughout America, and then everyone's singing Santa Claus is coming to town with Zoe de Chanel, and then all of a sudden, the believeometer is way up, and then what happens? Santa's sleigh can take off. Why? Because everyone believes. And that's the way that our world, that's how we see what it means to believe. It's sort of this charade. It's sort of this fun. It's this comfort. It's just sort of like, okay, there's something mystical out there. There's something I don't see, but I have to believe in it. And, and I can participate if I want to or I don't have to. And that's, that's sort of what it means to believe in our culture. But that's not the way that Scripture defines belief. Belief is really reliance. I'm relying on God to do something. Now, just like Jesus in the wilderness, he has comfort knowing that the Spirit can guide me into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and I'm going to trust that God has something better for me. Now, our reliance is different than Christ because we're sinners, but we still have this same basic belief. We're still hoping that somehow God is going to come through. Now, I'm not saying prosperity. I'm not saying finances. I'm not saying health, because some of those things we don't, we're unsure of what there's going to be. We don't know the future. But when I say reliance, I'm talking about like capital R, reliance. And to understand that, we have to understand every human being's basic need. Your number one need is not food, it's not water, it's not even marriage, it's not even children. Your number one need is not even air. Your number one need is to be made right or to be justified before your creator. Because every single one of us at some point, at at the end, is going to face your creator and you're going to have to give a righteous account of your life. That's that's your need. That's That's my need. That's your need. And so... What we are banking on when we talk about belief is I'm believing in what Christ did on the cross and I'm banking my life, I'm banking my soul, I'm banking my eternity on what he did on the cross would be sufficient when I stand before God. Because when God looks at you, he he has to look at your record of perfection Anyone have a record of perfection here? I mean, even your New Year's resolutions, right? You're like, I'm going to work out every single day, you know? January 3rd, oh, you know? (laughs) Right? I'm going to floss every day, you know? Bled like crazy, check, did it, right? (laughs) But none of us have a perfect record. So if this is it, and we're going to stand before God, and he wants our righteous, what, what can we do? Well, someone else has to have a righteous effort for us. 
And so we're banking our lives on the finished work of Christ. We're believing that Jesus will stand in our place before God in both his sinless, perfect life and his penalty-paying death on the cross for us. First Peter says it this way, First Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also once, also suffered once for sins and, right, and the, right, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, what, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. This is what it means to be a believer, that Jesus' perfect sinless life and his payment penalty death was in your place. And instead of looking at your record, God looks at Christ's record on your behalf, but not only his record, but his death on the cross, his sacrifice for your sin, for my sin, on your behalf. That's what he looks like. That's called substitutionary atonement. He substituted his life for you. He died in your place. That is what that means. So when you say you have faith, if you say you're a believer, you're believing in that. Meaning, it's not just enough to say you believe in Jesus. You can say, oh, 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 this person, oh, they're a Christian. Why not? Well, they say they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus lived. They believe that Jesus died. They even believe that Jesus rose from the grave. You know what James says? The demons actually believe that. The demons actually believe Jesus was a real person. Jesus physically died. Jesus physically rose from the grave. What's the difference? You have to believe in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for your sins. That is what makes you a believer. That's the difference. And people will often use and misuse Romans 10.9. They'll say, well, I know where I'll show you Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So all I have to do is say the name Jesus and believe. Yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. Yeah, you're saved. But what we often miss is verse 10. What is verse 10? For with the heart one believes and is, what's the word? Justified. You know what justified means? Positionally made right before God. And with the mouth one confess, confesses and is saved. A believer isn't just believing that Jesus exists. What makes a person a believer, Paul says in Romans 10, it's believing that you're justified. This means that you're made right before him. It's not just believing in the name of Jesus that saves you. It's believing in what Jesus did on the cross that secures your eternal, eternal life for you. Scripture calls this faith alone. Faith alone is one of the many distinctions of Christianity from other, every other religion. Every other religion in human history rejects this idea that we're justified by faith. Instead, other religions assert that how are you going to make right before your God is, you, is one through your moral effort, through your good deeds, and somehow you balance your account through enough effort to outweigh the evil. But, but being a believer is really admitting 
that you and I are woefully insufficient to stand before God with a righteous verdict. Rather, we are trusting Christ's righteousness to be enough to save us. That's what capital R, reliance, is. You're relying on Christ's atoning work that when I stand before God, he's going to look at what Christ did in my place. So Jesus says, believe. This is what he's saying when he says believe. But not only does he say believe, but he also says repent. If faith is turning to Jesus and relying on him for salvation, repentance is really the flip side of that. Now, I said this last week, but many people say repentance is just, oh, just do a 180, you change directions. However, repentance is more than that. It's actually a heart change. If you ever meet a new believer, all of a sudden this person, they said, man, I I thought I was a Christian, and then all of a sudden I started reading scripture, and I became aware of my sin. Then I have a desire to share the gospel with people. Then I have a desire to read the Bible. Then I have a desire to be generous or to serve others. And man, it's just changed my life. You know what that is? Repentance. And with repentance, there's a brokenness. There's a sorrow, a godly sorrow toward our sin. We say, man, I have sorrow toward what I looked at on the internet. I have sorrow toward how I've treated that person. I have sorrow toward how I have gossiped about that person. I have sorrow toward the envy in my heart. That's repentance. That's brokenness. And brokenness is not something that you can manufacture. Brokenness is something that only the Spirit of Christ can do. But repentance comes with belief. That's why I shared belief first, because repentance is just a byproduct of belief. Because once you believe in the atoning work of Christ, as Peter says, and we just read in Acts, that you, have, you will receive the Holy Spirit. What happens when you receive the Holy Spirit? You begin to love the things that God loves, and you begin to hate the things that God hates. And I want you to see the importance of repent and belief, specifically when it comes to repentance. Because with repentance, there's, there's often this misconception of repentance. There's often this idea, even in the South, I even hear people say, like all the time, well, I've made Jesus my Savior, but I just haven't made him my Lord yet. And what people are saying is, I know my salvation's secure, I know I'm going to heaven, but there's nothing in my life that looks like I love Christ. Here's the problem with that. Everything in Scripture. Because if you're living with that thing, if you're saying, man, I'm going to go to heaven, but I have every intention to live like hell until I get there, can I plead with you that biblically, Scripture gives you no confidence that you know Christ. Scripture gives you no confidence that you have a relationship with Christ. Because when you understand that your salvation is secure in Christ and he gives you the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit changes your life and you begin to love the Lord. And if people, when when they're struggling with their testimony, when they're like, man, I don't know if I became a believer when I was 10 or I don't know if I became a believer when I was in high school or college or in my 30s, like... The question I always ask is, when did you begin to love God more than you loved your sin? Because that's showing evidence of salvation in your life. Jesus says, if you become a believer, he's going to be his 
your savior, but he's also going to be your Lord. He's going to be your master. He's going to take up residence in your life. Jesus says that you cannot have two masters. You cannot be, he's not your savior unless he's your Lord. He's not your Lord unless he's your savior. Both are the same. They're one in the same. And people get goofy when it comes to this man. I remember a few years ago, I heard a sermon, and it was like, if you're not sure if you're a Christian, think about a time in your life where you may have prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to come into your heart. If you can't think, maybe it was a long time ago for you. Maybe you have to think way back. I'm like, are you kidding me? You think way back? Like, let's just say this is a marriage conference, right? Maybe some of you don't know if you're married, right? If you don't know if you're married, maybe think about a time in your life where you maybe shared some vows with someone, right? Maybe your parents spent a ridiculous amount of money on you. You get married. Maybe there's some pictures involved that would prove that you're married. Like, are you? No. How do I know if I'm married? Well, I share the same bed with someone, right? I share a house with this person. We share our bank account. We share our children, hopefully, right? You have these things that you share. It's, it's in your face. It's inescapable. It's a part of your life. It changes everything, or it should. That's the gospel. It should be present in your life. I'm a believer. I love the Lord. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to be perfect because none of us are. I am saying you begin this process of loving God more than your sin. And you begin going to war with your sin. That's what the Spirit does in your life. James says the Spirit yearns jealously when we have sin in our life. So the Spirit... He's not going to take a break, not going to take a nap on you. He's going to fight that sin in your life, and you're going to see it in your life. You're going to produce fruit. James, or rather John, 1 John 3. When, when John talks about this, he talks about repentance as an ongoing process of, of change. 1 John 3, 6. He says, no one who abides in him, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Now, he's not talking about perfection, but here's what he's talking about. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, if you read the rest of 1 John 3, he uses the word practice. We're talking about practice, right? Practice. Island Iverson, anybody? Um, He says, you're not going to keep practicing sinning. Now, a few years ago... I remember um, watching ESPN, and there was a documentary on, it was a short little thing on uh, Steph Curry. And Steph Curry is a point guard for the Golden State Warriors, and it's really changed the game of basketball and made it kind of boring. Like, it's just all outside now, and no one goes in the paint. Like it's, you know, but he shoots way behind the three-point line. And that's, he's probably the greatest shooter ever, all right? Greatest shooter ever. And they, they showed his regiment of why he's probably the greatest shooter ever. And they showed him shoot behind the three-point line. Now, I don't know if you know much about basketball. Three-point line is around 22, 23 feet behind the goal. And I'm not impressed when a six-foot-nine guy dunks it, all right? I'm like, you should be able to do that, right? 
But when someone shoots three-pointers on a regular basis, I'm impressed because that is something I can attempt to do. And if you don't believe me how hard that is, there's a couple goals outside, give it a shot. Mark 23, let me know how far you you get. But Curry would shoot 100, and he made 94 out of 100 threes from different parts behind the arc. He didn't miss his first one until 77. And his teammate, Clay Thompson, had around 90. And I think he missed his first one in the 60s. And they asked, how in the world do these two guys have this ability? How does Steph Curry have this ability to shoot threes on a regular basis? And the, the coaches all say that that's what he does when he practices. He just goes and works on his form. He works on his release. He works on different places in the court. I don't know if you've ever seen him before games. He's, he's shooting in warm-ups at the half-court line, right? That is what he does. That is what he, listen, practices. So you want to know why he's the best at threes? He practices them. He gets better at them. James, or John says, Mark says, we see it throughout Scripture. If you're practicing sinning, Scripture gives you no confidence that you are a believer. And here's what I mean. You're trying to get better at sinning. You're trying to get better at hiding. You're trying to get better at denying your sin. You're trying to get better at lying about your sin. Scripture gives you no confidence that you're a believer. How do you know if you're a believer? How do you have security? Repentance. Repentance means I hate sin. I'm going to get worse at sinning because I'm fighting it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to get better at pressing toward my God because he's my master. He's my Lord. He's not just my Savior, but he's my Lord. Are you tracking with the difference there? Repentance is a heart change. It's not just a one-time act. It's a heart change. It's called sanctification. So repent and believe. That's the invitation that we all have the gospel. I'll read it again in Mark 1, 15. Yeah, we're still in Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says this. Jesus is saying this is your invitation to respond. Repent and believe in the gospel. So my question is, how do we respond to that? First of all, we have to take this truth and reply it to our own life, our own salvation. One of the things I ask people, if they wonder if they're saved, I ask them, are you secure? Do you believe that your salvation is secure in Christ? Do you believe that when what Christ did on the cross is what will give you a righteous verdict, that when you stand before God, Are you going to bring your own righteousness to the table? Are you going to say, this is all the things that I've done to prove that I love you? Or are you going to say, man, I have nothing to bring to the table except for my sin. This is what Christ did on the cross for me. And I'm I'm, I'm trusting that that is sufficient. That's what a believer is. So you have to apply that truth this morning. Because many of us, we, we come trying to get our own righteousness and hope that's enough to save us. Friends, it is not. So my hope is as you apply the truth of the gospel of what it means to believe 
that you would apply that truth. This is what it means to believe. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus is a real person. It's believe, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross is right and sufficient for me as I stand before God. Not only that, but I would look at your own life and say, is my life really different? Is there an old me and is there a new me? And if there's no difference between an old me and a new me, there's no change. There's no genuine salvation. So my, my plea for you was, is to genuinely repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. Only the Spirit of God can do that. You cannot manufacture that. So you have to plead with the Lord. Lord, save me from my sin. Rescue me. I surrender my life to you. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you need to do it this morning. But for those of you who are walking in repentance and belief, perhaps this would even change the way that you communicate the gospel. We're all guilty of maybe sharing the gospel in ways that are not biblical. Maybe we haven't done it fully. Maybe we haven't done it clearly. But perhaps when we share the gospel with people, we say, hey, let me invite you right now to repent of your sins and to surrender your life to Christ. Let me invite you to to trust him. Maybe, maybe it would even change some of the conversation that you're having with people. Maybe there's people in your life that you're like, man, I don't know why, but I meet with this person and I share about maybe a sin struggle that I see them having and they, they just fight me on it every time and they're not really fighting. They don't seem like they're fighting sin or they don't seem like they love God's word. They don't seem like they really want to be in community or all these things. Perhaps maybe a different conversation. Maybe they really don't believe. Maybe they don't really know Christ, and so maybe it would change the conversation, how you even relate to them. Maybe it even change the way that you uh, pray for them. Repent and believe should change everything in the way that we see the gospel and how it plays out. And so for all of us, as a church family, as we understand this truth of what it means to repent and believe, may this truth, as these are the words of Jesus Christ, as these are the truths that have echoed throughout the early church and throughout church history, May it stir our hearts more for the gospel. And may it break our hearts for those who do not know Christ. And may it give us boldness. As we saw the boldness of John the baptizer as he shares the good news, may it give us boldness to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's my hope this morning, the very words of Christ, of repent and believe, they would become real to us and sink into our hearts of this is what it means. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful right now for the good news.